So I want to ask you a question. You would, I want you to try to answer it in your own mind. Don't, you don't need to call it out. What are you, or maybe what have you been willing to give up in order to reach your goals? What are you willing to give up in order to reach your goals, whatever those goals might be? I imagine it might be quite a lot. Uh, we see this in various areas of life, right? So politicians give up a lot of privacy in order to try to win elected office. Elite athletes give up quite a bit, like they give up sleeping in. <laughs> they give up indulging their sweet tooth in, in order to win at whatever they're competing at. But even the ordinary goals of ordinary people like you and me also often require quite a bit of sacrifice. Dropping those last 10 pounds, making the next promotion, getting that A+, plus, that 4.0, all of those things demand their own kinds of sacrifices. Maybe you've got to sacrifice dessert, or your weekends, or video games. So I think we're all used to giving up things, sacrificing things to reach our goals. But would you sacrifice your rights to reach your goal? I suspect not. We tend to give up our luxuries, uh, the, the, the non-essentials in our lives, not our rights. Rights are defended and protected. They're not relinquished. Unless, that is, unless I need to relinquish one right in order to protect maybe a more important right. So in wartime, Americans have proven again and again that we are willing to sacrifice some rights, like in the form of accepting a certain amount of censorship or rationing. We'll, we'll sacrifice some rights in order to protect the most important rights, the right of freedom itself. Like Nathan Hale, who said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Before he was hung by the British as a spy in the Revolutionary War, Americans, American patriots, have long understood that life itself might be worth giving up for liberty. We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, entitled United We Stand. And you know, we, we've been looking at, at Paul's argument to the Corinthians, and he has been addressing this, this problem of division in the church, which ultimately has come down to a division over what it means to be spiritual and who is the most spiritual. And, and Paul has just finished telling them in chapter 8 that spiritual people are willing to give up their rights for each other. So, so here's the question. Is my brother's spiritual welfare, is my sister's spiritual good a big enough goal to justify such a costly sacrifice as giving up my own rights? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, this is found on page 1016. 1016. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning, all the way to verse 27. Let me just, as you're turning there, uh, and you're going to be helped by keeping your Bibles open throughout, because we're, we're going to be working through this passage, and I'll be referring to different verses. As you, as, you, as you find 1 Corinthians 9, let me just remind you, Paul has just finished saying, kind of the last verse of chapter 8, he's just declared that he'd rather become a vegetarian. He'd rather give up eating meat than cause a weaker brother or sister to fall under judgment. And, and in chapter 8, he called the Corinthians to sacrifice their rights for each other. And now as we get to chapter 9, he's going to hold himself out as an example. As an example of someone who's given up his rights for the sake of others. And specifically, he's going to hold out that he has voluntarily given up his right to be paid for his work. Now, I think we'd all agree that working for free is a much bigger sacrifice than becoming a vegetarian. I think most of us would agree with that. And there might be a few of you that would disagree with that. But I think most of us would agree that working for free is a bigger sacrifice than, than giving up meat. But as we're going to see, for Paul, it is a no-brainer. And he confronts the Corinthians, and he's going to confront us with a stark conclusion I think it's kind of the, the main point of what he's driving at in chapter 9. We'll put it on the screen. If you're not willing to sacrifice your rights, you're living for the wrong goal. If you're not willing to sacrifice your rights for your brothers and sisters, for their spiritual good, then Christian, you are living for the wrong goal, a goal that is way too small. We're going to consider this chapter in, in two parts. We're going to consider first Paul's rights in verses 1 to 14, and then second Paul's goal in verses 15 to 27. And as we do this, I want you to consider, are your goals big enough to be a follower of Jesus? As a Christian, you claim to be a follower of Jesus. Are your goals big enough to really be a follower of Jesus? All right, let's start by looking at Paul's Rights. That's first. Paul's rights. Look at verse one. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, because you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this Don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife? Like the other apostles, the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not drink the milk from the flock? Am I saying this from a human perspective? Doesn't the law also say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned about oxen? Isn't he really saying it for our sake? Yes, this is written for our sake. Because he who plows ought to plow in hope. And he who threshes should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? 
Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. All right, we'll stop there because we're going to look at Paul's rights. So Paul starts with this series of rhetorical questions there in verses 1 and 2, and the answer to all of them is yes. His point is that if anyone has the authority to live in Christian liberty, it's him. And and if anyone has the, the freedom to speak freely to them, it's him. He's an apostle. He's an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ, and he is the founder of the church in Corinth. That's what he means when he says, you are the the seal of my apostleship. They, They owe their spiritual lives to him. Now, why does he need to make that point? Well, it's because he's about to set himself forward as an example, a positive example, that the Corinthians should follow. And that's kind of tricky. Uh, As any preacher knows, you should never use yourself as a positive example, just about. You should never be the hero of your stories. You're going to come across as prideful. Uh, Paul knows that. Paul knows it'd be be better to be like the the bad guy in his example. It'd be better to appear to be the weak person in his his example. But he's going to do it anyway. And and so he's kind of setting himself up best as he can. Kind of demonstrating, hey, I, I can do this. I have a right to speak to you in a way that normally we wouldn't. And he launches into his defense, his explanation of why they should follow his example there in verse three. He starts with the right that he has given up. And it's, it's the right to be paid. It's the right to be financially supported by the church there in Corinth. Now, he doesn't like start right there, right? He starts with these rhetorical questions again in verse four, a, a, a whole bunch of them again. And again, the answer to these rhetorical questions in verse four and verse five, uh, the, the, the assumed answer is yes. Yes, we do have the right to eat and drink. We, we do have the right to be accompanied by a believing wife. Uh, his point is like, look, Barnabas and I, we're not, we're not different from all the other apostles. We're, we're not different from Peter. We're, we're, we're not different from the, the Lord's half-brothers like James and, and Jude. Like all of those guys, they had itinerant church planning ministries. Some of them were pastors of local churches. They all had the right to be paid. And, and Paul's saying, look, we're, we're not any different we have the right to be paid so that we can support a wife and family who's traveling with us or so, so that we can put food on the table and a roof over our heads. That, that's kind of the point of those questions there in verses four and five. And Paul then offers two justifications for that right. Common sense and scripture. Uh, he, he starts with, with common sense there in verse seven. He points to the example of soldiers 
and farm workers, you know, vi- people who plant a vineyard or who, who watch over sheep. He said, look, they have the right to support themselves from their labor. Soldiers don't pay to fight. They're paid to fight. People plant a vineyard and they eat the crop. People keep a, a flock of sheep and they, they drink the milk and feed it to their kids. Laborers, and this is just common sense. The laborer supports himself from his labor. This is the way the world works. But then you you notice in in verse 8, he says, oh, but I'm not just talking from a human perspective. This isn't just like common sense wisdom. No, I, I can point to scripture for this. He turns to scripture in verses 8 to 13 and to temple practice. And he quotes Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, which we heard read earlier. Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. It's a strange law. I, I don't know if you noticed that when we got to, it's like, oh, it's just kind of hanging there at the end of all of these other laws that have to do with doing what's right, what's, what's just and fair, tempered by mercy. Now, on its face, that, that statement about don't muzzle the ox while it treads out grain, it, it's, it's about the fair treatment of your working animals. In an agricultural context, this would have been really important. Uh, you might be tempted to be really greedy as the ox tread out, kind of threshing the grain, pu- pushing the, 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 the stone around and around as it's, as it's grinding the grain. And you might think, I don't want to lose any of that grain to that, that hungry ox, so I'll put a muzzle on him while he works so he can't eat any of it. And and the law says, no, don't do that. That's not fair to that animal. He's working for you. His payment, as it were, is to be able to to eat when he gets hungry. So let them eat while they work for you. But of course, Paul points out, actually, this isn't finally about animal rights. Now, Now, if there is a case for animal rights, there it is. Right? If there's a case for animal rights, and I think there is, it's right there in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. But Paul says, fundamentally, ultimately, this is not about animal rights. He asks rhetorically there in verse 9, does God really care about oxen? Yes, all you animal lovers out there, God really does care about oxen. He does. He cares about all the creatures that he made. We could go to multiple Psalms that make that point. But Paul's point is that the law isn't just stopping there. It's actually making a greater claim than just God cares about the animals he made. And it's interesting, in in making that point there in in verse 9 and 10, isn't he really saying this for our sake? Paul is actually teaching us how to read the law. So this is just kind of an aside. This is not really what this passage is about. But let me just point out how Paul and the rest of the New Testament teaches us as New Testament believers to read the Old Testament law. There are all sorts of laws in the Old Testament that have no direct application to us anymore. For, for a variety of reasons. Uh, they don't have direct application to us anymore because I, I, don't, I don't live in Old Testament Israel. I'm not a farmer. Like there's a situation in life and stage in history. They also don't have direct application for us anymore because Jesus has come and he's fulfilled the law. But does that mean that we just ignore the Old Testament or it has no benefit? No, no, no. We understand, and Paul points out here, there are underlying principles that still apply, that we can still learn from. Because those underlying principles to specific laws that seem to have no relevance to us today, those underlying principles reflect the moral government of God, which has not changed. So there is a lot of profit in reading the Old Testament for the Christian. He's also pointing out 
the, the way, one of the ways we do this, and that is that the law has an analogical function. It works by analogy. He's arguing here from the lesser to the greater. If oxen should be treated fairly in their work, how much more humans? And that includes humans that are gospel workers. All right, back to Paul in chapter 9. So he says, look, just as farmers plow and thresh in hope of being able to feed and support their families, so gospel workers who sow spiritual seeds have every right of expecting to earn a material benefit from those who benefited from their spiritual ministry. A spiritual work results in a material benefit for those who do that spiritual work. That's kind of what he's arguing there in verses 10 and 11. And, and then he points out, look, others, others have been paid at Corinth. Like other teachers have come through. You've paid them. Shouldn't Barnabas, Barnabas and I, of all people, the people who actually founded the church, don't we have the right to be paid even more? As he says there in verse 12. In verse 13, he gives one final example Again, from the Old Testament, this was the practice in the Old Testament temple. The, the, the priests who worked there actually lived, earned their living, fed their families off of the offerings that people brought, off of the sacrifices that people brought to the temple. It's interesting that he chooses that because you'll remember back in chapter 3, verse 16, what has he already said to them? You guys, the church, are the temple. So it's a pretty direct connection. And then he summarizes it all in verse 14. He, he actually refers to it as the Lord's command. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. Now you're wondering, where did the Lord say that? Yeah, you're not going to find that in any of the Gospels. This isn't a quotation from one of the Gospels. Rather, he's saying, look, this is the implication of Old Testament law and the rules concerning the temple, and you are the temple. Paul understands that the Lord wrote the Old Testament, and that the Old Testament, in some of the ways that we've already talked about, applies now to New Testament believers. The Old Testament rightly applied through Christ continues to be the Lord's command to his New Testament people. So you got 14 verses there that I've moved through very quickly. And Paul has established his right to be paid. And all of this is just set up for what he really wants to talk about. Because in a moment, he's going to tell us, yeah, I've given all that up. But, but first he had to establish that, that it's, it's a right uh, before he can argue why it's significant that he's giving it up. But so let me, let me just pause here and think about what this means for Henson. Since even though the main point is going to come next, this is one of, the, one of the clearest pieces of teaching in the New Testament on this topic. And I just, just want to acknowledge that if you, what, last week I think I, I was it last week or two weeks? Uh, last week I think I said how, how great it was to finally not be talking about sex. So this week I feel like out of the frying pan into the fire. I don't have to talk about sex this week. I just get to talk about money. <laughs> Your money. 
talk about sex? <laughs> that would be so much more comfortable for me. All right, so we're going we're to talk about this for just a moment. Let me start by saying, as one of the four paid pastors, now there are more people paid here because we've got staff, but as one of the four paid pastors here at Henson, I just want to start by saying thank you. Thank you for your generosity. I, I think I speak for all the pastors that I wake up almost every day thinking, I cannot believe I get paid to do what I get to do. This is just fantastic. Uh, and, I get, and I get to be paid for it. So, so thank you. While it's right that you pay me, and while Paul has just made the case that I have a right to be paid, that in no way affects my sense of gratitude. Uh, my, you know, my kids eat week in and week out because of you. They're going to go to college because of you. Uh, they've got a roof over their heads because of you. I am so grateful to you uh, for, your, for your generous support of not just me, but, but all of the staff. So now I'm going to say a bunch of other things, but I want you to hear that first. Like, thank you, because that, that gratitude is real. My, my goal is always that for me and from the rest of the staff, you feel like you're getting a bargain. You, you feel like, wow, we get so much more and so much better than, than, than what we're paying for. That's always my goal. That's the way I think about hiring. I always want to hire people that you will end up saying, wow, what a deal we got there. Uh, and, and it's the way I want to conduct myself. That said, these 14 verses right here, this is why you pay your pastors. This, this is why you support other gospel workers that we have sent out for the sake of the gospel. You, you understand, especially looking at verses 1 to 14, you understand that your staff pastors and the global missionaries that we've sent out are not in different categories. They're just in different locations. We, we really are the same category of gospel workers. The other, the other main difference is uh, we, we would think it would be presumptuous at the very least if we went to other churches and said to other churches, hey, you should help pay for our pastor. But we understand that to send out multiple global workers, we're going to need to get multiple churches together partnering to send them out. But both of us, pastors, global workers, both are gospel workers who support themselves and their families through gospel work. Now, you, not, only do you, so not only do you support us, of course, we're, we're, we're supporting these missionaries. This is one of the reasons that the elders are, are kind of leading us to support fewer missionaries to the greater glory of God. We, when we support a missionary in the same way that you support a pastor fully, we'd like to, when we support a new miss, missionary and send them out, we want to support them in a big way, in a significant way. Because just as you have a relationship with me and you have every right to that relationship because you're paying me, we want to make sure that, that when we send global workers out, it's also really clear we want a deep relationship with those global workers. We, we don't want 100 workers that are all getting $10 a month from us and therefore have, like, <laughs> we have almost no claim on their kind of relational capital. No, we, we want to go deep with the people that we send out. Paul talks about this 
as a right, as a matter of justice. It's, it's just fair and right to be paid for your work. But, but did you notice that he points out also the benefit that you receive? What you gain as a congregation, I trust, is a spiritual benefit. You're, you're fed God's word. You're, you're built up in Christ. You're encouraged and helped to continue to follow Christ until the end. That, that's, that's what you get. What does it cost you? It's merely a material cost. Merely a material cost. From the Bible's perspective, that's a bargain. That's a real bargain. What did, what did Jesus say? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? J Jesus is laying out a basic economy there in which the spiritual is always worth more than the material. So to think that you could spend something that's worth less and get something that's worth more Man, that, that like goes against all of the economic laws that we know, right? Buyers and sellers in, in the material world, in the economic world, they're, 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 each one is always trying to get advantage over the other. If, if, if it's a fair sale, that the trade is equal. But, but, but of course, the, the seller always wants to get a little bit more and the, the buyer wants to pay a little bit less. That's, that's the way it works in the material world. But, but here you're being offered like an extraordinary deal. Give up something of comparatively less value and gain something of comparatively greater value. What a bargain. I, I would encourage you the next time you're thinking about giving to support the work of this church or giving to support the work of a missionary or, or, or some, some other uh, gospel work that you're involved in supporting. Don't think of it as a cost. Think of it as what a bargain I'm getting. Because I think that's the way Jesus would have us think of it. And I think what you'll find is that actually promotes even more generosity in you, a generosity that you will not regret. Now, somebody asked me this week, does this mean that churches that don't pay their pastors are in sin? Like, is it wrong if a church doesn't pay its pastor? Uh, there are traditions out there, uh, a certain, certain aspect of the brethren, for example, uh, who, who don't have paid pastors. They, they just have a plurality of elders. Everybody's bivocational, they're, and they're all kind of part-time. And, and let me say, not necessarily. Not necessarily is it sin. Uh, there, there are reasons in, in which this might make sense, uh, especially if it's voluntary, like Paul. Paul is voluntarily giving up being paid. So if, if, if somebody grew up in a tradition in which all of the pastors kind of voluntarily decided not to be paid and to be tent makers, I mean, that's fine. They are free to do that. And then there are other situations, right? Like in church planting, uh, which I think is what Paul has particularly in view here. He didn't want to hinder the gospel because he's trying to plant a new church. Well, we've done similar things. You know, we, we sent Virgil out to plant Redemption Church, and we are still paying part of his salary. Why? Because we don't want his salary to be a burden on that young church as it's trying to get established. So there are going to be certain circumstances and situations where it's, it's perfectly fine, maybe necessary, but, but certainly fine voluntarily, 
for pastors not to be paid. But I don't think it's ideal. I say that because by paying your pastors, you're actually setting them free. You're setting them free from worldly concern. How am I going to feed my kids? How am I going to clothe my kids? You're setting them free so that they can fully give themselves to your spiritual benefit. So I think churches that, that long-term don't pay their pastors are actually just shortchanging themselves. A pastor who, who has to worry about how am I going to put food on the table this week? How am I going to meet my mortgage? That's a pastor who's not as available to his flock to care for them and the work of feeding and shepherding the flock. And you don't want your pastor to have to choose between putting food on his table or putting spiritual food on your table. You don't want him to make that choice. We're back to that bargain again that you're getting. Now, historically, many churches in America, but I would say maybe especially on the West Coast, have followed the adage, Lord, you keep them humble and we'll keep them poor. You've heard that one, right? That is not a biblical prayer. <laughs> I don't think I need to convince you of that, but let me just be on the record. That is not a biblical prayer. Lord, you keep them humble, we'll keep them poor. It runs counter to what Paul is teaching here, to what the Lord is teaching. I just want to say, you guys are doing great. You guys are doing a fantastic job caring for your pastors financially. But you, you should know that, that when I got here 13 years ago, I moved from being an associate pastor to being a lead pastor. That sounds like a promotion. I had to take a major pay cut to make that move. Now, I did that voluntarily. I was, I was happy to take a large pay cut to get a promotion, as it were. That doesn't mean it's good. Uh, there, there are several knock-on effects from that, not least of which my salary is the ceiling for everybody else's here at the church. So one of the things that you guys have done a great job of as a congregation and as elders is you, we've spent the last decade trying to right-size salaries here at the church. There's more work that needs to be done. But I want to thank you for allowing us to do that work as, as the church has made huge progress in that regard. So how do we set salaries here at Henson? Uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, there is an elder compensation subcommittee composed entirely of lay elders not in the pay of the church who also are not married to staff who are in the pay of the church. So we've got a, an uh, a compensation subcommittee of elders. And they basically go out and they kind of look at benchmarks. They look at equivalent levels of service and responsibility in the nonprofit and the governmental sectors, not the for-profit world. That's like a different world, but, but a similar kind of world. And, and they, they try to set benchmarks. And their goal, as I said, is to do all that we can to set families free of worry so that pastors and their wives and their families can fully give themselves to the work. That does not mean getting rich. It also does not mean being poor. I, one of the ways you could think about this is if you had a church of only 10 people, and let's say they, they had um, no building, they had no other expenses. The only expense they had was a pastor. 
If everyone tithed out of those 10 people, the pastor would live right at the middle. He would live right at the median of the congregation. That's not a bad way of thinking about this as, as we try to go about this. But, but what I really want to stress as I wind this section up is the investment that you're making as a congregation, an investment in your spiritual well-being by giving of your salary to support the work of this church. You, you realize that when you voluntarily take some of your salary and you give it up, you're doing exactly what Paul did. You, you are literally following his example, not giving up your whole salary. I'm not asking anybody to do that. Uh, but giving up part of your salary, it's like you're following in Paul's footstep, voluntarily giving up some of your salary for the sake of gospel work. And let me just say, if you're in a season of life where you don't really need the personal attention of a pastor, you know, things are going well, things are stable, things are good. Now is the time to give generously. It's precisely when you don't need a pastor it, it, it is the time to give generously so that when you need him, he'll be there and not burnt out or strung out from overwork at the moment you need him most. So if you've got questions about staff compensation or how we think about this here at the church, let me encourage you to reach out not to Mark Whitcomb, but to Michael Kane, uh, the, the chairman of elders of, of, of the elders here at Henson. He would be happy to talk with you. We're getting ready to go into budget season. So this is on our minds. And again, let me end where I started. Even though Paul says it's a right to be paid, your pastor's counted a privilege to work here. Your pastor's counted a privilege to be your pastors. And if we could, I think we would all do it for free. Thank you for not asking us to. Okay. Having established his right, and I'm done talking about it, Paul makes it clear that he has voluntarily sacrificed that right. We, we, we all know this about Paul, right? He, he was a tent maker. This is where that phrase comes from. He supported himself by literally making tents and selling them. That was the trade he was trained in. So he has sacrificed that right and just self-supported. And, and he actually says it three times. You see it there in verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Verse 15, for my part, I've used none of these rights, nor have I written these things that they may be applied in my case. Don't misunderstand me, Corinthians. I'm not writing this, so you'll start paying me. Verse 18, my reward is to not make full use of my rights in the gospel. All right, vegetarianism is one thing, but working for free is another thing altogether. What could motivate Paul to give up such a fundamental right? Well, to understand that, we need to consider, second, Paul's goal. Paul's goal. Let's pick it up in verse 15. For my part, I have used none of these rights, nor have I written these things that they may be applied in my case, for it would be better for me to die than for anyone to, to deprive me of my boast. For if I preach the gospel... I have no reason to boast because I'm compelled to preach and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if unwillingly, I am entrusted with commission. What then is my reward? To preach the gospel and offer it free of charge and not make full use of my rights in the gospel. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize run in such a way to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. All right, Paul says he'd rather die than give up his boast of preaching free of charge. This is a little confusing, this section here. He says, well, I can't boast in preaching because I had no choice in that. Verse 16. He was commissioned. He was compelled into service by the Lord. He's referring to his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And he understands the consequences if he disobeys. He says, woe to me if I don't fulfill the commission that the Lord gave me by preaching the gospel. And then he goes to point out, look, you get a reward. You get paid. You get a reward for volunteering for going above and beyond, doing what you didn't have to do. You don't get a reward for just doing your duty, what you had to do anyway. So here's where it really gets confusing. Paul says his reward or boast isn't preaching. He had to do that anyway. No, his, his reward is preaching free of charge and not using his rights. That's what he says there in verse 18. So, and, and, and the language he's using is the language of remuneration. So how can your payment be not being paid? How can your reward being not financially rewarded? Well, the answer is Paul's goal. A goal that is so big, it's worth giving up one kind of reward, the reward of getting paid, in order to get a much better reward the imperishable crown of eternal life. And that's a reward that he's after, not just for himself, but for the Corinthians and for us as well. Paul explains how this works in verses 19 to 23. He says, look, I'm free. The point is because I'm not paid, I'm free. I, no, no one's bought my time or my labor. I'm free to use my time any way I want. But I've submitted my freedom like a slave to everyone in order to win people to Christ. That's what he says there in verse 19. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I've made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. Which people? 
Well, he tells us in verses 20 to 22, to Jews, those who are under the law, Gentiles, those who are not under the law, and the weak. Now, those categories should sound familiar to you because these map right back on to the groups of people he was talking about in chapter 8. Paul holds himself out as an example of giving up a much bigger right than not eating meat for the sake of others because of the gospel. This is Paul's goal. This is the sacrifice he's willing to make in order to reach it. He he said it negatively back there in verse 12. I didn't talk about it then, but he says at the end of verse 12, nevertheless, we've not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. So there he says it negatively. Now in verse 22, he says it positively. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. I think there is perhaps no verse in modern church life more misunderstood and badly applied than 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. We read this, all things to all people so that by any means I may win some. We read this and we think he's making a pragmatic argument. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. Whatever we need to do to win people, we'll do it. Smoke machines on the platform and fancy lights. Motorcycles on stage and stunts by the pastor. I have friends who have done all of those things. Whatever it takes, right? To get people in the door so that they'll make a decision for Jesus. On the mission field, this looks like things like the insider movement in which people are told that they can continue to live as a Muslim or as a Hindu while following Christ. They don't have to come out as a Christian. It looks like movement methodologies that that are so eager to not just get people to make a decision, but to be able to count those decisions. That as soon as they've got two or three people reading the Bible together, they count it a church and move on and tell them, go get more people reading the Bible together. It counts. Rank pragmatism, doing whatever it takes to get people to make a decision is not what Paul is saying in verse 22. He does not mean anything goes. I mean, he makes that point, right? In verse 20, he says, I live like those under the law, but I myself am not under the law. So I'm not taking all that on. And in verse 21, to those without the law, I live like I'm, I don't have the law, but I am under Christ's law. Paul's not throwing away the principles of the Christian life. He's not throwing away the principles of the gospel in his pragmatism to get people to respond. No, this is not about the ends justify the means. This is a verse that is all about being willing to sacrifice himself, to sacrifice his rights, not his principles, his rights in order not to hinder the gospel, in order to see people come to know Jesus. That's his goal. 
And friends, that's my goal this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus, if you have not submitted yourself to him and received his forgiveness and and his love, then my goal is that you would do just that today. I want to convince you that this vision of radical self-sacrifice is what God's love looks like. How, How do you know God loves you? How do you know what God's love for you looks like? It looks like this. It looks like God sacrificing and sending his own son, the second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh. And then Jesus, God in the flesh, sacrificing yet again, giving his life as a substitute for your life, taking your punishment so that you don't have to bear it yourself. Friend, God's love looks like self-sacrifice so that you and any who repent of their sins and put their faith in him can have what Paul calls here a, a share in the blessing of the gospel. What are the blessings of the gospel? It's being forgiven. Everything you've done. Everything that causes you to feel dirty and ashamed. It's it's the blessing of, of being adopted. Of actually belonging to the family of God. It's the blessing of eternal life. Not this life never ending. But having the life of heaven itself a life that will not end. Friend, if you don't know Christ, being a Christian is not about having an intense enough experience. it's It's not about cleaning up your life and making yourself better. It's not about justifying yourself to anyone. It's simply about trusting that the gospel is true for you today, depending upon Christ for these very things that I've talked about. I would invite you to do just that today, to trust in Christ. Come talk to me about it. There's nothing I'd like to talk to you about more. Talk to the person that you came with. But don't walk away misunderstanding what it means that God loves sinners. It means this. It means sacrificing everything for love. Now, Christian, let me talk to you for a moment. I asked you at the beginning about, you know, goals that you're willing to sacrifice for. What what goal are you willing to sacrifice for? What goal are you currently sacrificing for? What are the things that you're sacrificing You know, I think for most of us, our goals involve sacrificing not our rights, but our luxuries, our extras, maybe our comfort or our convenience. Are you living for the right goal? I'm not saying those lesser goals shouldn't be a part of your life. I'm just asking, are you living for the right goal? Only the biggest goal would induce us to give up our rights, not just our comforts. 
What are you willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? What might God be calling you even today to be willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel? That's a question that'd be good to know what the answer is to. Like have that answer in your mind as you walk into this week. Because the stakes are high. Paul wants the Corinthians, he wants us to follow his example of being willing to sacrifice our rights because he doesn't want any of us to fail to win the prize of eternal life. You, you see that there in verse 24, and it's interesting, the subject changes in verse 24. The subject changes from I, Paul, he's been talking about himself, to all of a sudden you, the Corinthians, you, Corinthians, you, Henson, run in such a way to win the prize, he says in verse 24. Verse 25. Run just like I'm running. It's not correct theology that wins the prize of eternal life. It's the self-sacrificing Christ-like, Paul-like love that the gospel produces in you that wins the prize. He, he compares the Corinthians to, to athletes who discipline themselves, giving things up in their kind of strict training regimen in order to win. Or to, or to a boxer who trains rigorously. He says, look, runners, runners don't just run around aimlessly. Boxers don't just flail at the air. No, they're in it to win, and so they exercise self-control. What do you mean self-control? They give up their rights. As does Paul. He doesn't want to be disqualified, he says. He doesn't want to get to the end of the race having preached the gospel and it be being pointed out, yeah, but your life was not characterized by the self-sacrificing love that the gospel should produce. You may have preached it, but Paul, you didn't live it. Paul knows that doesn't win the prize because the gospel does not fail. The gospel, wherever it truly exists in a person's heart, produces this kind of self-sacrificing love. He does not want to be disqualified, and he doesn't want us to be disqualified either. The stakes are high. And so, to, to borrow from the end of his argument, which we'll get to next week, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Friends, the goal is heaven. The means is the gospel. But the race must be run to the end. And the race is a life of Christ-like, self-sacrificing love. Not to earn the prize, but to demonstrate that we've already received it. If you're not able to lay down your rights then you are living for the wrong goal. You're trying to win the wrong prize. But brothers and sisters, if you are living for the goal of the gospel, if you're living for the goal of heaven itself, then you, I know you will affirm with me, there is no right too big to lay down. Like Nathan Hale our only complaint on the last day will be 
that we only have one life to give for the goal of seeing Jesus. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment. Think of that that thing that you don't want to lay down. That thing that you consider to be a right, that you don't want to sacrifice for the sake of love. And just tell God that. Talk to him about that. Lord God, we confess that we may be very good at this world's economics, but we're really bad at heavenly economics. We misvalue things all the time. We, we elevate small things into big things, and we minimize the bigger things into small things. And, and we just get it wrong. But we pray that you would allow us to number our days aright and to evaluate our lives correctly. We pray that we would see the great value of the gospel. We pray that we would see the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ and heaven itself. And that our lives would then reflect that correct valuation. That we would live in such a way that it's clear that the gospel has produced in us a love that's willing to lay down everything that's less in order to obtain that one thing that is needful, Christ himself. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.